Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the wonderful Dr. Lisa Lewis. Say hello. Hello, thanks for having me. No problem. So I like to always break the ice with all my guests, and can you tell the audience if you have any big plans for the weekend? Um, my big plans for the weekend are to go to my best friend's brunch birthday party tomorrow. And, um, you know, I have a newborn baby. So anytime you leave the house, like in the last couple of weeks has been a major adventure (laughs) in like bringing a whole set of things and kind of being ready for anything. So it feels like a big plan, even though it's not really a big deal. (laughs) Well, the small things matter now. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Uh, so can you tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? Sure. Uh, so I'm a licensed psychologist, and I'm a certified drug and alcohol addictions counselor. And um, basically, by trade, I'm a mental health professional. So I worked for years at the master's level as a licensed uh, clinician, and then I went back and earned my doctorate in counseling psychology that had a specialization in sport and exercise psychology um, in order to become a licensed psychologist. So I, I sort of have interest in two worlds. One is mental health and wellness and what helps people to thrive and not just avoid mental illness, but actually to, um, incur happiness and high achievement and success. And, um, I also have this other interest in, um, addiction and, um, and exercise and nutrition and strength training, um, and working with people who are high achievers or high performers, people interested in athletic endeavors. Awesome. How did, how did you get into psychology in the beginning? Ooh, it depends on what in the beginning means. I I think my like earliest memories are being, um, a kid being like in middle school and being really interested or fascinated by dreams. And I sort of had like one of those little dream interpretation books, um, and used to want to try to tell all my friends what their dreams meant. And then when I was in high school, I saw um, Silence of the Lambs, and I saw Jodie Foster being a forensic psychologist, and I was like, oh, my God, that is totally for me. <laughs> um, and I got really kind of, I'm sure a lot of other young people did, too. I got really sucked into the idea of working for the FBI and being a profiler. And um, the more I learned about that, the more I saw just how how negative kind of that whole world is and what a dark place you sort of have to live in to do that work. Um, and all the while that I was interested in psychology, I was always athletic and involved in all kinds of sports and just a very physical young person. So when I got to college, I was playing sports and and taking a lot of psychology classes. And one of my professors said to me, have you ever heard of sports psychology? And it's sort of like the first time you find out there's cookie dough ice cream. It's just like the (laughs) best, uh, the best combination of things ever. Um, and so that really helped to guide me to find that there was like research and, and other interest in the two things that I love the most. I find like sports psychology so interesting because like an example I always think of is when Vancouver went to the Stanley Cup back like mm-hmm. six, seven, I can't even remember how many years ago, yep. but our goalie, Roberto Lolongo, like our fans here in Vancouver, like... <laughs> We have a reputation of either really, really loving our goalies or really, really hating them. And it was, like, so sad to see, like, if he let one goal in, whole stadium is booing him. And he's, mm-hmm. like, dubbed as, like, the worst goalie in the world. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm like, how can, like, this one guy take all that and not feel inferior the next time he goes onto the ice? Yeah. Right? Like... <laughs> It must be so difficult for like these high-end athletes that feel like it's all up to them, and if they let down all these people, then they're the worst person in the world. Yeah, and I think that's an example that really demonstrates the importance of mental toughness or just having mental skills, and that it is important to have physical skills and to practice and and to, to be able to execute physically. But the things that separate really high achievers and people who are consistently successful from people who aren't is that mental component. It's, it's that toughness, that grittiness, um, psychologically being able to be resilient and kind of withstand external pressures that really sets them apart. And even though we can see really clear examples of that in athletics, I think those kinds of things happen in life every single day where people can be successful even, you know, 
despite having all kinds of pressure or criticism or other negative forces pushing up against them. So that's why I love sports psychology. I think it's widely applicable to people who are not necessarily participating in a sport. Now, do you think, like, self-talk is a good thing to do if you're, like, doubting yourself, if you're trying to, like, achieve something in life? Yes, I do. And I I think, in particular, positive self-talk is really important because probably what many people do that they don't realize they do is engage in negative self-talk. I think there's an internal monologue that's running all the time. And sometimes we aren't consciously paying attention to what it is. But when I work with clients and get them to kind of notice that or observe that a little bit, often people will describe very like critical kind of negative things that they say to themselves pretty regularly, uh, which could be affecting their expectations and then their performance. So I think having a conscious effort to talk to yourself positively um, can make it can make a difference. So what's kind of like the best way to kind of get yourself out of that rut of you telling yourself that oh I'm not good enough I'm not going to be able to do this or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Um, the the first thing you want to do is observe observe and describe. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't even know, I don't think I talk to myself or, you know, I don't think I do that. You can just spend some time noticing what happens. Um, and I encourage clients to like, if, if you like to visualize, visualize yourself as a cartoon character that has a little, um, one of those little thought bubbles over your head and what is the running ticker of, of thoughts and just try to collect some data on how you are talking to yourself on a day-to-day basis, particularly if it's around a performance or some aspect of your life that you're working on. So once you collect some data and you notice how you're talking, like, is that, a, is that constructive? Is that helpful at all? Is that a way that you would talk to a colleague or a friend? Or if you were coaching someone, is, is that the way that you would communicate with them? And if your response to that is no, it's kind of a downer or it's critical or it's actually unproductive or not helpful, then maybe you want to tweak it. Uh, the, the third step to tweaking it, so first you've identified it, um, and then you've identified that it's negative. So now you want what, to do what they call is thought stopping. And thought stopping basically means catching yourself and being like, oh, there I go. Um, and there's expressions like shooting on yourself. So you could say I'm shooting on myself or I'm talking down to myself right now. And then the last step is thought replacement, which is really individualized. Um, so if... For example, I were a surgeon and I had a little scalpel and some tongs and I could cut out that negative thought from your brain and insert one that were constructive or helpful or positive, what would I put in there? And for some people, they really like positive affirmations. Some people feel good about saying to themselves something that is really positive. Other people are more like, let's stick to the facts. Like, let me, let me think more about what I actually need to do to execute a task or, um, they like something that's maybe more dry or less, less maybe positive or flowery, but more just sticking to the facts. So I think each individual has to find like what is most constructive for them in order to focus on the task at hand. Um, but I do think it's a worthwhile endeavor to engage in those steps. So let me see if I can summarize. First, <laughs> you're just going to observe and describe. Second, you're going to evaluate. Are those thoughts negative, positive, helpful, or unhelpful? The third is you're going to stop the negative thoughts. And finally, you're going to replace them with something that's helpful and constructive. I think that first step is huge because like a lot of people nowadays are not really that self-aware what they're saying to themselves. I agree. And I think it was Coach Stevo that might have said this from Habitry. Um, when he's coaching a client, he'll actually like write down notes as they're talking. And the yes. moment they start saying like mean things about themselves, yes. he'll start writing every single one. He'll stop yep. them and be like, okay, I'm going to read back what you just said about yourself. And then the yep. person's like, wow, I'm really mean to myself. He's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an excellent exercise. And, and actually there's an exercise called scripting, um, where that starts with that step, actually, that, that coach that you referred to does, which is you have somebody talk about a performance or something they did and you just, you just start writing down things that they're saying so that you capture that data and you can say it back to them. And just like this coach was telling you, the client says like, oh my God, that's pretty mean. 
and then you develop a script, like what do you want to be saying to yourself? And, um, I've worked with lots of different clients and, and just written down things that they think would be helpful or constructive or had them go through a time when they had a really awesome performance and tell me about what that was like and how they felt and what they were thinking and then have given that to them. And some people, you know, keep it with them in their bag. Some people put it in their computer or in their phone or, and just, I encourage them to expose themselves to that because how many thousands of times have you said something negative to yourself and how reinforcing is that? So you got to make a concerted effort if you want to change the way you're thinking to practice stating or restating positive thoughts or constructive thoughts. Yeah, a good example I always tell clients, like, this is for a professional athlete, but Kobe Bryant, I remember reading an interview of him, and he said one of the keys to his success in the NBA was that every single day he told himself he was the best basketball player in the world. Yeah. And having that thought in his head always, it translated to how he played. Because he said yeah. the moment you feel inferior to the guy next to you, you're going to play inferior to him. Yep. So, like, yeah, positive thought is a huge one, but I find, like, sometimes when you tell people to start doing it, they're like, oh, that's silly, that stuff doesn't work. <laughs> and that and that just means, like, tailoring it for that individual. Like, Kobe Bryant is, an, like, a very elite athlete. And, and I think if you hear interviews with people like him who are really kind of the top performers in their field, they will describe that kind of thought, like, I am the very best, nobody is better than me. So some people might feel like that's inauthentic or not genuine for them. So what is gen- what would be genuine for them? And it's just kind of like tweaking it or helping them figure out, like, the right sentence. Because if they're saying, like, oh, that feels silly for me to say I'm the best, well, then what feels more accurate or what feels more like a good fit for you? Yeah. I was going to ask, like, have you seen any, like, bad advice that coaches out there are giving to their clients because they don't have that much experience in, like, the psychology department at all? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, because, like, when you a guy or a girl becomes, like, a trainer, they're like, all right, I'm going to get everyone fit and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But a lot of times it's like, why isn't this person not doing what I'm telling them? And then the trainer yeah. gets frustrated and they're like, well, they're just lazy. And, but really there might yeah. be something else going on. So yeah. Like, I don't know. I it's, think, go on. Sorry. I, it's okay. I, I think the number one mistake that any of us in a helping profession make is making a direct correlation between like the client's behavior and our worth or our effectiveness or making it all about us, especially in the beginning stages. So for you're giving this example of a trainer who's getting frustrated, like, why aren't they doing what I'm saying? Why aren't they following my, you know, making it about the trainer, making it about his or herself, as opposed to being like, huh, that's interesting. I'm giving evidence-based advice and this person is paying me to do what I say, but they're not doing what I say. I wonder what that's about. Like it is reflective of the client and where they're at in their ambivalence or their strengths and weaknesses. It actually probably has almost nothing to do with the trainer, (laughs) his or herself. And what we know is one of the most effective tools any helping professional can have is the relationship with the client. So once the trainer starts judging the client or resenting the client or having negative feelings about the client, it's so counterproductive to the whole endeavor because it just distances the two people. Yeah. Like for me, like when I see other coaches and they complain that their clients are lazy, I'm like, I don't know if they're actually lazy. There might be Mm -hmm. something going on. So like Mm -hmm. over the years of training, just kind of picking up the small puzzle pieces they leave out and then when they yeah. eventually kind of open up like they could be going through a divorce and the last thing on their mind is I want to go to the gym <laughs> right lazy to me is kind of a ridiculous word it's like I don't, one word I really hate is the word slut like I feel like what even is that word like the word lazy we're all people who have a million different things on our plate and we all have only a certain amount of energy, and we have to make a lot of choices about how to expend that energy, depending on what our values are and what our priorities are. And so lazy, to me, is a misnomer because it's the client's priorities and their beliefs or their values are just in a different place than whatever the trainers are, which is probably why the trainer's a trainer in the first place (laughs) and why the client's a client in the second place. So I think what you're saying is 
you know, like as the trainer taking ownership and trying to understand the data, like instead of, instead of taking the client's behavior as a reflection of you and how good or bad you are, you're looking at the behavior and saying like, huh, what does this mean? What does this puzzle piece mean? And how can I understand that to better help my client? It's a very different orientation, like a different lens to look through. And the next thing I kind of wanted to get into, because we're all on the topic of like psychology, is that episode of the Fit Cast with Kevin. Shout out to Kevin. Um, when he Thank asked you. you yeah. I, by the way, I've been listening to his like podcast probably since when he started. He, he, I know he's like he was like one of my mentors growing up without even knowing it. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, I had the privilege of actually interviewing him probably a couple months back, and it was like so weird to hear his voice on the other side of Skype. <laughs> but it was well, awesome. I'm sure he was flattered. That's yeah. great. Um, so I think he asked you something about like if someone can coach themselves to a better diet, and then you mm-hmm. said something on the lines of like if your thinking is screwed up. How can you use your thinking to fix your thinking? Can you kind of dive into that a little bit deeper? Yes. And um, what you got to do is not think about it too hard because it can make your brain hurt. So let me see if I can think of an analogy, which would be something like, let's see, let's say this is not going to be the best analogy, but let's say that your power drill is broken and you need to fix your power drill, but the piece of equipment you need to fix your power drill is your power drill. You can't use your power drill to fix your power drill because your power drill is broken, or you can't use a piece of software to fix a program on your computer that needs that piece of software. Um, So what I'm trying to get at is when you're left to your own devices, all you have is your thinking. And if your thinking is maladaptive, or if it is dysfunctional in some way, if it is very negative and not objective, then you are using a piece of equipment that's not functioning properly to try to fix that piece of equipment. So it's a setup for frustration, for you know what they sometimes say, like the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again. It's because you've got you're trying to fix a faulty piece of equipment with a faulty piece of equipment. Um, and one of the reasons I talk about this as often as I do is because people will often ask me, um, like, do you recommend therapy or when do you recommend therapy? Or do you think people should go talk to someone professionally? And one of the reasons why I think it's a good idea is because then you get an opportunity to talk about your thinking with someone else. So you get to check in with another piece of equipment that hopefully is functioning properly and can say like, you know, like that coach you referred to earlier, like I just heard you say three or four really negative things about yourself that, you know, aren't helpful. Um, and maybe that's a professional or maybe that's not, maybe that's a trusted friend. Maybe that's another trainer or a colleague or somebody in your life who you feel is, um, really highly functioning in an area that you're struggling with. But I, I do think that if you are struggling in some area of your life, be it behavior change or, in this example, it was nutrition, like coaching yourself to a better diet. And you're just going round and round and round. You have to think like, what is the constant variable? You know, if you failed on this diet and you failed on that diet and you couldn't follow this template or that template, you are the consistent variable in, in all of those different experiments. So it would behoove you to, to get the mechanism by which you are trying to impart and practice um, these behavior changes with someone else just to see, like, where is it that you're going wrong? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it definitely does. Like, okay. the moment you said that on that episode with, at the FitCast, like, it just, like, it just clicked with me. And I'm like, this oh, totally good. makes sense. And, like, everybody knows, like, to lose weight – you should probably be eating vegetables. You should probably be eating protein. You should mm-hmm. probably move more. Like, mm-hmm. all the information's out there. People know what to do. Correct. But they don't do it. So I'm like, that, that makes sense right there. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really have, has really helped me in my professional and my personal life is in the whole early part of my career, I worked a lot in addiction. And Um, working with people who are in early recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And it's very clear what you need to do. You need to not drink. You need to not use drugs. 
um, and you need to take care of yourself. And so it's very black and white. It's very, very clear, particularly in AA and NA, like there's no gray. It's, it's a very cut the shit model of what you need to do to get better. And people don't do it. (laughs) It's, it's hard for people to get sober. So I think being exposed to that over, you know, thousands of clients and all different ages and, and races and, and belief systems and just seeing, you know, it's not that the person doesn't want to get sober or change their behavior. It's not that the person wants to be miserable. They, they want to make change in their life. It's just the part of their brain that they need to work properly is the part that they're trying to use to get their brain to work properly. Um, so it's very challenging. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but with like those AA groups, I can't remember if I read this or watched a video, but for people going through the program, it doesn't matter like what step you're at. It's the very last step where you actually help someone else get over alcoholism or you're like their buddy or something like that. And even Oh, you're if, talking about the 12 steps, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So if like mm-hmm. you don't even complete that last step and don't like help another person that are on the steps below you, the chances of you actually getting over alcoholism is pretty slim to none. Is that, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of variation. You know, I think like any belief system, people interpret it all kinds of different ways and practice it all kinds of different ways. Service is a core component of 12 steps and you really can't be an active participant in any kind of 12 step group and not be helping other people. It's just kind of part of the culture. Um, you know, I know that I know what you're referring to is that 12th step, but I don't think it's necessary for someone to say like formally work through all 12 steps and get to the 12th step in order to never pick up a drink or a drug again. There are some people who never really formally work the steps; they just go to meetings and try to practice that way of of life. So people do it kind of all kind of different ways, just the same way like. Catholics do it all kinds of different ways and vegans do it all kinds mm-hmm. of different ways. Um, I think everybody has their own way that they interpret and, and, and practice it. But I think the main thing to point out, one of the sayings that they have in 12 step programs is the program works if you work it, which means like if, if you, if you practice this, if you make it a way of life and not just, you know, do it for 30 days or something, it, it will work for you. Uh, and I think that's a big crossover into nutrition and fitness also is people say like, well, you know, I tried this program or that program. And, um, what we find is I think when people are actually trying a specific program or working with a trainer, are they really working the program? Are they being compliant? Are they consistently following guidelines? Um, and typically not people like to bend rules or skip pieces or, um, try things for a short period of time and then kind of step away from it. Yeah. Like I was just going to make the connection that like with that 12 step program, there's Mm -hmm. this giant kind of like community of people all trying to get to the same goal and they all have a kind of their own way to get there. But the fact that, you know, the person to the left of you and right of you is in the same boat as you, I just Mm -hmm. feel like there's a better chance of that person like achieving their goal. And I, mm. I like to make that connection with like fitness, like over the last probably like three to five years in our industry, like everyone's switching to semi-private. And ever since mm. I did that, I was like a light bulb hit, like my three clients that I'm training right now, they're all trying to get to the same place. And now that they can chat with each other, they feel a little bit more like they have more confidence to actually, I can actually do this. Yeah. I, don't, I just like the, that kind of connection there. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the big, um, I guess one of the universal ways that humans think that get us into trouble is that we are alone. So nobody's like me, or nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can understand how I feel. One of my favorite psychologists is Irving Yalom, who is kind of the the grandfather of group psychotherapy, and he said there there are some core psychological components that are universal to all of us. And, and one of them is this, like, we're part of the human race and we're, we're not alone. Other people experience the things that we experience. So I, I 100% agree that when you connect people who are going through something similar, there's a shared 
experience of like, I'm not the only person who's felt this way or thought this way or had this struggle. There's somebody else like me and that, and that is therapeutic in and of itself and motivating also. I also find it interesting when like, I have had a couple clients like this where they come into the gym, they want to lose weight Mm. and like you kind of start peeling layers from them to why they want to lose weight Mm -hmm. and then they end up telling you, but They'll, they'll just like flat out tell you, but I don't want to change my eating at all. That's never going to change. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. do you not like get that yeah. that's kind of like a main component? Yep. And I, I, just, I just find that interesting that, you know, they're in the gym working their butts off, but no matter what you're going to do, they're not going to change their eating. Yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I, it's another area of, of, fitness and strength training, I think there's a big overlap with addiction is food. You know, food is a drug. Food is very intimate for people and and almost like people have a philosophy around food and eating and what it means for them. And it's so much more than just sustenance. Um, and you know, it's like, how do you respond to something like that? It's a, it's a black and white issue. Like if you're not ready to change your eating, then you're not ready. So are, you know, you could be one of those trainers who's like, call me when you're ready, or you could be a trainer who's like, okay, you're, you're not going to see much progress if you're not willing to change your relationship with food or, or how you're managing your food. Um, but it is kind of remarkable think, how powerful food is for us. Yeah. Cause I kind of try to look at that situation. Cause I, when I come across something different like that, I take a, like a moment to step back and think about mm-hmm. it. And I was mm-hmm. looking at my client's like history with food and she probably since like she was a kid the tradition with her family was to eat out every single day like lunch and dinner every single day and to this day that and she's like probably in her 40s continues to do that now her kids are doing that wow so I'm like that's just how you grew up like it wasn't even your fault like you just it's just a habit now. It's like ingrained to you that you're yes. not going to like, she doesn't cook at all. She just goes and eats out all the time. And I'm like, wow, man, like if you even just like took one meal out, like every second day, like it'd be a yes. huge difference. But yes, it's just interesting how you, like your family and culture and traditions can like mold you to who you are. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things I think makes it so challenging to be a helping professional because people who are strength coaches or, or trainers, like you study this one specific area and you have expertise in this one, in this one area, but actually you're talking about all kinds of things. Like here you are as a trainer, you're thinking about like her whole family system and what it means to eat out and what it means to make your own food. And just, it's sort of these like huge, big questions that have absolutely nothing to do with probably like the stuff that was on your licensure exam <laughs> for being a trainer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is, I think this is why like continuing education is so important. And like people listening to podcasts like this or just caring about that kind of stuff, because I don't hear you saying my client's lazy or my clients, I don't know, some other negative thing. I, I hear you thinking about it in that bigger picture of like, here's the context of the culture and the family and the larger system that she comes from. And this is why she functions that way. And how can I, you know, as her trainer who has access to her, like maybe twice a week for 45 minutes, you know, how do I impinge some kind of interest to shift, move the needle a little bit on something that's been so ingrained in this person? So here's another question for you. This is like a selfish question almost. It's like, Mm. as a coach, like you want to help these people as much as possible, but it's like, how far can you like dig deep before they're like, whoa, that's too personal. Like, what are you good doing? question? Right. Like, <laughs> Such a good question. Yeah. And I, I really think it's individual. Um, it's individual. I think not only for the client, but then for the helping professional. And I think this gets back to between every client and trainer or every client and helping professional, there is a chemistry. Um, so I, you know, I would imagine like, working with trainer a, if trainer a is like maybe like a similar gender or a similar age or has a similar appearance or just the chemistry is better. Maybe that client is more willing to talk about personal issues or talk about food 
more transparently than they would with like trainer B who maybe is a different age or from a different cultural background or, um, some people are really, really private and boundary some people. And I've, I've had trainers tell me over the years, like my clients just like vomit, like their life problems all over me the whole entire time <laughs> we're training and tell me all kinds of personal information that I, that really is way beyond the scope of like what I need to know. Um, so there's so much variation. And I think trainers themselves have their own personal comfort level with how far they want to get into it and how far they want to stay out of it. And Tony and I did a seminar in Texas last summer where, you know, Tony Gentlecore, who's my husband and a strength coach, sorry, I just randomly said Tony, but, um, you know, he was talking about the physical components of training people and cueing. And I was talking about the psychological components and I had a few trainers come up to me in the break and, and present like a case, talk about a client they're working with. And I was like, man, this sounds like a therapeutic relationship. Like, you know, so much information about this person. This person's really relying on you for psychological, like comfort and guidance and advice. And it's so much more than just a training relationship. Um, whereas some other trainers are just really super boundaried and, and just want to like stick to the nuts and bolts of what they're doing. So uh, this is probably the opposite of a helpful response. Cause I'm like opening it way up and saying, <laughs> it depends, it depends, it depends, it depends. Um, but just like in the time we're talking together, it sounds to me, Rafal, like you're pretty um, pensive and reflective about your clients and, and what they're talking to you about and what their issues are. And so I would imagine that probably they're more receptive to you talking about different areas of their life because you're more sensitive to it. You yeah. know, you've got your lens open for that. I always try to keep myself open and always kind of I, I try not to pry open too much because you never know what you're going to get. But mm-hmm. as long as, like, I see them every week and, like, I kind of ask questions and sometimes they just, yeah, like you said, some clients will just, like, open up and you're like, mm-hmm. holy crap, I can't believe you said that. Like, mm-hmm. I have one online nutrition client where when I do my nutrition call with him, like, I'll say, hey, what's going on? And then, like, for 15, 15 minutes straight, yes. he's just talking and I'm like, okay, like, (laughs) there was, there was one time where he was talking the whole time, and at the end of it, he's like, all right, good talk, we'll, uh, catch up next week, I'm like, I didn't say anything, it's just, it's interesting how people are like that. Yeah, and I mean, can you think of an example of, like, how do you know if you're maybe overstepping, or maybe if you're, like, open, and the, the client is really not wanting to go somewhere or talk about something? Um, can you think of what they might say or some vibe that might be out there that would like communicate to you, okay, I should back off um, or let I've, it go? I've seen it where it's like they told me like through an email, like, hey, just a heads up, something happened in my family. So tomorrow at our session, it might be a little off just to give you mm-hmm. a heads up. And I'm like, okay, it's mm-hmm. all good. And then the moment they come in, like, you could already see, like, they're on the brink of, like, crying almost. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, we're just going to talk about anything else other than what happened with your family. Like, yeah. things like that. But you can you can instantly tell if someone walks into the gym and they're usually happy and they just have, like either a resting bitch face on mm-hmm. <laughs> or, like, they're just not themselves or, like, super quiet. Like, I'll say, yeah. like, hey, is everything okay? And that's kind of either they tell me or they're like, ah, I'd rather not talk about it. I'm like, okay, right. let's, let's go lift heavy. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, some of it's verbal, but I think other, like, you're talking about the expression on the face. or I think a lot of that stuff is communicated non-verbally, and we're just always picking up other people's vibe. And one of the components of being a good trainer, I think, is having strong social skills and knowing how to read people's cues whether they be verbal or nonverbal and, and, and how to respond to that. Like if they're, if they're open or they're closed and if they're closed and you feel like, okay, if I even ask how they're doing, they're going to burst into tears. So I'm just going to get right down to business. That's a, that's a very socially intelligent kind of decision to make where nothing overt is being exchanged. You're just sort of like reading the situation and, and moving forward. Yeah. Another interesting one is like probably 80 to 90 percent of my clientele are all moms mm, <laughs> and uh, what is that like <laughs> it, it, I love training moms because I, I think I've said this like a bunch of times on my podcast where one when they come in the very very first day 
they have like no expectation and they have no idea how strong they can get. And then when I start working with them and you start seeing them like, oh, I just deadlifted over 100 pounds. I'm like, that's freaking awesome. And then mm-hmm. they do their first chin up and they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm like, I know. Right. And then I think I've probably said this story at least a couple times on my podcast where one of my clients that I've been training for like five years, mother of three, full time job. She was at the park with her kids and her husband husband's like okay let's do a chin-up contest he pulls out like one shitty one and she pulls out six strict chin-ups and she's yeah like, and she's like oh yeah i kicked your ass and i'm like <laughs> i love that right yeah but that's now, awesome uh so like my question or like this what i'm gonna say out there is i find it interesting when moms depending on how many kids they have like how how they can put fitness as a priority almost like I've seen moms with just like one newborn and they're like, I'm not like cutting back on the gym at all. Like I'm, I'm mm-hmm. leaving my husband in the morning with the kid. Mm-hmm. I'm going to the gym so they can mm-hmm. deal with it. And then some other mm-hmm. ones are like, oh, I'm just so busy with this new child. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to mm-hmm. maybe come once a week now. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what's going on inside their brains that mm-hmm. like just having a child, like I can't say like I'm never going to have a kid anytime soon, but mm-hmm. um like what's going on in their heads that, you know, having this child is now turned their world upside down and they're not going to mm-hmm. make any more time for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a good question. And I'm just like reflecting on how like six weeks ago I would have probably responded and, and said something, but I would have had no freaking clue what I was talking about without even knowing it because it is and people say this, but I'm going to say it too. It's such a major transition because for 37 years of my life, it's been all about me. And yes, you know, I have a husband and I have relationships and people I care about, but like pretty much my time belongs to me and I, I can do with it whatever I want. And all of a sudden it's not, my time is not about me anymore. Um, and so I think that all of us have anxieties about different things about being a mom. Um, And for me, I have to go to the gym. I have to move my body. I have to be a physical person or else I'm just not, I'm not psychologically fit. I don't, I don't feel good and I'm not, I'm not a good version of myself. Um, so I know that about me. So it's not just important for me to get to the gym for me. It's important for me to get to the gym so I can be a better mom and a a better wife and just like function cognitively better. And I, I really know that about myself. So it has remained a priority for me, but at the same time, particularly, I mean, right now I have a newborn, so it's like, you know, he could wake up in five minutes and want to eat. He could wake up in two hours and want to eat. Like there's absolutely no telling. And the only way he's going to (laughs) eat is if I am in the room with him, um, because I'm nursing him. So there's sort of a tether. Um, and how do you, how do you maneuver that tether? I'm comfortable with, um, you know, having a bottle for my husband so he can feed the baby so I can go out to the gym. But some moms, you know, they, they want to make sure that they're readily available hundred percent of the time. I talked to a mom, um, a couple weeks ago who came over to visit me and she had a baby last year and I asked her how long it took her to like get back into her strength training. And she's an avid like runner and somebody who's come to my spin classes for years. I'm a spin instructor. And she, she said it took me a year because she was really focused on her son's schedule and his routine and really nailing that down. And And I think that helped her to feel the best about his health and the family's health. Whereas, you know, for another mom, like she may be more a kind of like type B or go with the flow or be somebody who's more comfortable with like things not being the same every single day. Um, so I think the things that make us anxious before we're moms are the things that make us anxious, like after we're moms. And if the routine and the schedule is part of that, then it's going to shift your priorities. Um, and some babies, like from what I understand, some babies like get on a schedule right away and are like pretty cool and pretty easy. And other babies are fussy and tricky and, um, kind of all over the place. So I think there's a lot of confounding variables, um, that get in the way of a mom's decision or her, you know, her priorities to stay active. I find like, 
the moms that are a little bit more controlling and have like a bigger personality, they kind of take over their life. Like, okay, I have this kid, but this Mm -hmm. doesn't change anything. And like, I have a handful of moms that train right at 6 a.m. And they're like, I wake up my husband and he's responsible. So he has to deal with it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. good for you. Or good it's for like, you. I know there's some other moms that they like stay home all day with all their kids and the husband's off at work. And then she'll like ask him like, Hey, can you look after the kids for an hour this week? And then he kind of, it's like, Oh, I'm too busy for that. Blah, blah. And then, mm. so it's interesting also like the dynamic at home too, I think plays a huge yeah. role, but, um, yeah, because that, and again, like you're reflecting on the larger picture. It's, it's not just about that woman and whether or not she wants to train. It's about her relationship and how she sees her role in the family and maybe what the gender roles are or the division of labor. Like it's so much bigger than whether or not she wants to exercise. Um, it, it really is a, her whole, I, I guess, like philosophy around like, who is she in the world and what are what are her important roles and how does her as like a physical being fit into that? Uh, and I think for me, me being a physical person and, and being active is so core to like my happiness and my identity that there's really no getting around it. There's, there's really not a way for me to sacrifice training, um, and still like be happy and be functioning. And, you know, I'm lucky because my husband is well aware of that. So he is like, leave right now and go to the gym. And if, if the baby wakes up, the baby wakes up, it's going to be fine. And, you know, in that, in those first couple of weeks when I really needed to get out of the house, he helped me to do that. And, you know, maybe if my husband was a different person or understood me differently, I wouldn't have had that support. Um, so I think there's just a lot of factors at play. Yeah. I also like find it interesting when say this, like a woman in, in general or a guy in general just wants to like lose weight and get healthy mm-hmm. and the rest of the family is not on that boat whatsoever. Yes. And it's that much more difficult for them to come home and, you know, they have their dinner prep that's all vegetables and good protein. Yep. Yep. And then they look over and they're like kids and husband or wife. They're just like yep. eating pizza for dinner. And you're like, yep. why? <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's so hard. And that's so much exposure to like, like imagine every single day just being exposed to something delicious. And I think even worse than that is, is being around other people who are like, why are you doing that? Or, you know, who don't share that value. My sister-in-law was talking about even like in her place of work, she would take her lunch hour to go exercise. And the other, her colleagues at work were like, what are you doing? Like, where are you going? Or she wasn't having lunch with the other women in the office. And, And so it was, there was really sort of like a, an unshared value. Um, and I think that that really takes a toll if it's at work or if it's at home, it's really tough to combat. Now, what kind of advice would you give to like a new mom with her body image issues if she Mm. had them? Cause I know a lot of moms out there, they give birth and right away they're like, okay, I got to lose all this baby weight. I got to do this X, Y, and Z as fast as possible. Right. Yeah. I get it, um, but dot, dot, dot. And, you know, the first book, when I got pregnant, the first book I read was a book about postpartum. Um, and then I got to the other baby books and, like, how to get your baby to sleep and blah, 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 all that other stuff. But I was really, like, I guess maybe because my lens and being in a field of mental health, like, I had heard a lot about postpartum depression or um, I just kind of wanted to know, like, what do you do with yourself after you have this major transition. And one of the things, um, that this book read that it kind of kept going back to is like, you need to realize that your body has just gone under the most intense, uh, like transition or event possible. And there is, there is no race. Like it's particularly in the first like six to 12 weeks, your body is recovering. And if you're, if you're breastfeeding, it's going through this whole other transition where you need different calories and you need, you're not getting enough rest and you really need to nurture yourself as much as possible. So coming from a place where I totally understand, like I want my body back. I don't want to be one of these people who like, you know, had a baby and then let it all go. Or, um, I understand that anxiety. Uh, but I think over and over and over again, the wisdom that I kept hearing was like, 
do not be in a rush because you're going to be exhausted and your body is going to take a while to recover. Um, and so that's really helped me, I think, to not be in a competition with myself to hurry up and get back to, you know, my pre-pregnancy, whatever shape or weight or anything like that. And to try to view this time as a major, major transition where I'm actually taking care of somebody else. And I need to take really good care of myself and being in a, you know, caloric deficit right now is really not taking the best care of myself, particularly when I'm sleep deprived, um, and need like every, like muster up everything in myself that I can to have a good training session. Um, so do I look exactly the way that I want to look right now? No, but is that really what right now is all about? Not at all. And we'll get there. Like I had a friend the other day who was like, you got plenty of time (laughs) to, you know, get yourself back to whatever it is that you want to look like. Like right now is just not what this is all about. Yeah. Like a good advice that I've heard is like, if you're unhappy with your body right now, the good news is that it can change if you start implementing different things. Like you're just Mm -hmm. unhappy at the moment, but if you do something, you can actually get better. So don't kind of fall into this rut of, Oh, I'm never going to change. But it's like, no, you can like, this just takes time. Mm hmm. But I was gonna yeah. say, I was gonna say because I had a client where I think she had four kids, and this was the first time where I've had a woman tell me that you know after the four kids, their I think their ages were anywhere from like nine to thirteen. She wow. was actually going to get plastic surgery done to put her body back to where it was before. Aww. And I was like, that's interesting that you'd want to do that, like. I, I can't, like, speak for her or, like, women on the whole, but, like, what's your kind of take on that if women go to that extent? Like, should they do it? Like, because they just want to look the same way they did and all this yeah. exercise and diet's not going to get them back to how they looked 20 years ago or 15 years ago. <sighs> well, what's going to get you back to what you look like 20 years ago? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's, in my heart, that makes me feel sad. I one of my favorite quotes is from Cher and Cher said, if I want to put tits on my back, it's nobody's business, which to me is like, whatever you decide to do with your body, that's your business. And if you decide what you want is to have surgery or to have yourself altered in some way, and and that's what you feel will make you happy. Like that is your prerogative and that, and that is your choice to make. I think the underlying question for me is what will that achieve for you? Like, what is it that you want that you don't have now that having, you know, I don't know what surgery could give, like, could it make your waist back to 26 inches? Like what, what are you going to have with 26 inch waist that you don't have right now? Or what are you going to have with your butt being lifted up that you don't have right now? And the answers to those questions often are things that aren't true. So like, for example, yesterday I was talking to Molly Galbraith from Girls Gone Strong and she was saying, you know, a lot of women come to trainers and say, I want to lose 20 pounds, but do they actually mean that they, is that what they actually want? Um, and, and she was talking about, you know, how do we educate trainers about how to know to ask the right questions to see what is losing 20 pounds mean to them? Like, what do they think they're going to get out of that? Um, how do they actually want to look or be different? So I wonder what that client actually wants, who is going to have plastic surgery, um, to look like whatever she looked like 20 years ago. I don't know. Yeah, like, uh, I know she was training with another trainer at my previous gym, and, like, I wasn't training her at the moment, but, like, from some conversations, when she was pregnant with her last child, she was saying that, I think it was her ex-husband, but they were together at the time, he was actually telling her that she needs to lose the baby weight as soon as possible, and I was like, Mm. seriously? Like, She's pushing a human out of her, like, yeah, right? And even when she told me that she wanted to get plastic surgery, like, I told her, I'm like, you're the perfect the way you are. Like, you don't need to do anything. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was like, she's a hot mom, but I can't tell her mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so, I mean, and you're describing somebody who was supposed to be the most supportive person in her life, criticizing her and and telling her that her priorities should be different. And so... You know, how can you combat that? Like you're her trainer. She sees you once or twice, maybe three times a week for one hour. And, you know, 
how powerful are your words in comparison to somebody who she was married to, who was supposed to be her best friend and her confidant and her biggest supporter and cheerleader? Yeah. What a disappointment. I know. Like, mm. I was just, like, thinking, like, with my wife, I'm like, I would never say that, like... No. And, like, she always, like, complains, like, oh, like, I should lose another five pounds. I'm like, honestly, you're just fine. Like, just keep doing what you're doing. Like, mm-hmm. rather than having, like, aesthetic goals, like, just think of, like, I want to do a full chin-up. And usually if mm-hmm. women can do a full chin-up there, you have to be pretty strong and lean to begin with. So mm-hmm. all that other stuff kind of just comes along. But um, I do... I did have another client that did the plastic surgery route. So she had five kids, and then I think her last child was probably like age four or five, and she wanted to get breast implants because over the years of breastfeeding, they they weren't as great as they were, but she was Mm -hmm. like super excited, like super Mm -hmm. happy that she was going to get them. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other example I gave, she was almost like depressed that she would have to do it. Yes. So I found that interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's a good like difference to make. And like, you know, is that woman saying like, you know, I'm going to have plastic surgery so that I don't have to train anymore? No, she was like, oh, this thing about my body changed and I'm going to do something to like get it back and that makes me happy. I mean, that sounds like good for her as compared to that other example you give, which makes me feel sad to hear. Yeah, it's tough. Like, you can... I find the women have it so tough nowadays, especially with, like, social media. You can post a picture of yourself and then have that Mm. one person say something negative, and then your, like, whole life can change, and you just feel so down on yourself. Mm. And, like, yeah, I just... I don't really like social media for those reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very vulnerable to other people's opinions, which is too bad. Like, do you, what kind of advice do you have for women out there if they're on like constantly on Instagram and like scrolling through fitness models and people with like the ideal body? Like, what do you kind of tell them? Yeah, you have to you have to observe what you are exposing yourself to, and um. And again, like, what is your self-talk around that? So last year I had written an article about perfectionism, which um, stemmed from an email that I received from a woman who was describing kind of a problem with social media and saying, like, you know, I'm this person who, and I, she was a mental health professional, so she was psychologically minded. She loved to strength train. She loved to squat. She loved to deadlift. She had these awesome strength goals. In a lot of ways, she was really on track, but inside, in her head, she was filled with like guilt and shame and I'm not good enough and would beat the shit out of herself if she didn't like achieve a certain goal or she would think like, oh, I'm letting my trainer down if she didn't hit a particular number. So like, on the outside, a lot of things were great, but on the inside, she just felt like garbage. And and she wrote me this long email in which she narrated all this for me and was sort of like, what should I do? And And so one of the ways I responded was to just mirror back to her, like, you mentioned, like, this person and that person on Instagram or such and such on Facebook. And she was just exposing herself to a lot of images or ideals that were not congruent with how she looked, or I don't know, maybe they could lift a little bit more or they were a little bit leaner or something. And so there was like this really nasty comparison and just a lot of exposure to it. Um, And so one of the things we kind of talked about back and forth on email is like, do you really need to be like scrolling and looking at all of these fitness competitors or bodybuilders or like, is that really helpful to you? Um, and, and helping you to achieve your goals or to feel happier, to feel good. And the answer was no for her. And so we sort of troubleshot, like, you know, how can you just decrease how much you're exposed to that? And then the other thing is keeping in mind that people are putting their best face forward on social media. Like they're not taking pictures of their cellulite or their fat day or their muffin top or the unflattering stuff, which we all have, (laughs) you know, they're, they're putting like their best face forward on social media. Um, and so is that, is that really, I guess, helpful or constructive for you to compare yourself to something like that? I don't think so. No. Um, where did I want to go with this? Have you changed your mind in like the last like 
two to three years on anything like in your field in psychology or in like fitness and nutrition? Because mm. I find like in our industry stuff changes so much. Yeah. And like, I, I think I said this last episode, but if I can look back last year and go, man, I can't believe I did that with clients or I did that in my programming. <laughs> And now I yeah. do it completely different. I'm like, okay, I'm progressing. I'm at a good rate. Like, have you yeah. changed anything like that in your side? Probably nothing from black to white. But I do think there's this drift that I make um, that moves from, um, gosh, how can I even articulate this? I think that I've shifted a little bit on the spectrum from really focusing on, um, like in, in relationship to performance, like tasks and goal achievement and like, what are the A to B to C to D mechanism steps that somebody needs to take to achieve a goal versus the emotional process. For example, like I, I think in the last couple of years, I have realized that it is much more fruitful and productive to help a client talk about what makes them happy, what makes them feel fulfilled, what helps them to feel like they are in a growth orientation moving forward and how to like enhance that as opposed to focusing on like what's going wrong and how do we fix it? And, um, maybe the more like concrete steps. Cause I think a lot of clients come in and they're like, okay, tell me the steps to take, tell me the stuff to do in order to fix this problem or, um, improve performance um, in a really kind of like surface way. And there, there is some merit to that. You can get somewhere, but I think if I were to say how I've changed in the last couple of years is focusing more on the feelings and the emotions. I think in particular in our culture, that sort of gets missed or it gets covered up. And really that's why we pursue goals. It's why we move towards growth. It's why we want to improve ourselves is because it makes us feel good like part of the human condition is to want to improve yourself because of what that is like emotionally. Um, so I have, I have shifted towards more of a focus on that. Even if my clients don't come in, typically they don't come in focused on that. Okay. Um, do you think like failure is necessary for someone to achieve their goals? Like going through some sort of adversity before like reaching and like, finally I did it type of deal. I think failure is very important. I think it's very, very, very important. And um, one of the reasons I think failure is really important and really a good thing is because I work in a in a university setting with young adults who are millennials and and currently this generation there are people who've had much less experience with failure and failure is a really big, scary idea. I mean, I've I've actually sat with many students and discussed whether or not to hospitalize a student because they're thinking of killing themselves because they failed an exam or haven't gotten into a particular graduate school um, or something like that. So, so failure, I feel, is extremely important in building grit and resilience and, and understanding that like no matter what happens, most things you can bounce back from and, and move on from. So maybe it's not 100% you need to, need to, need to have it to achieve a specific goal. But I think to be successful in life, you have to go through failures. Yeah. The one thing you said, like with the millennials, like if they're, they failed an exam or a test, like mm. the whole mm. world crumbles. Mm. Whereas like the generation before them, it's just like, well, I didn't do good enough. So I need to try harder. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's like, because of their parents, like they went through all this adversity themselves. And then when they had kids are like, no, my kids are going to have it good. I'm going to give them as much as I can. So they don't have to live the life I did. Mm-hmm. Cause I, yeah. So there is this shift, like how one generation affects the, the other and generation X and millennials, both for the most part are being raised by baby boomers. But the idea is like how, I guess like, who were they working with or who were their teachers or who were their, um, mentors. So for example, like generation X, when we were in school or when we went into the workforce, we had that silent generation who was our managers or our bosses. Um, and that's like, just suck it up and figure it out. (laughs) Um, 
Whereas when millennials are coming into the workforce and when they're going to school, they're being managed or taught by baby boomers who have more of that um, mindset of what you were describing, which is like, I don't want my kids to go through what I went through. I don't want it to be as hard for them as it was for me. Um, and so I think there's this kind of the pendulum shift, you know, shifts from one extreme over to the other. And it may swing back in the other direction. I don't know, but, um, and there, I'm sure there are plenty of millennials out there that are resilient and that have that. But I do think one trend that we're seeing now, particularly in higher education, um, and in, like in the workforce, you know, millennials are now coming to the workforce and being managers and being in leadership positions is there's just much less contact with failure and much less like ability to cope with that. Yeah, I find like the millennials that their parents were immigrants, like my family's, mm. I, I come from an immigrant family yes. and they were like so hard on me that yeah. I remember when I was in like high school and if I failed the test, I was like, yeah. I did not care about what the teachers thought. I'm like, just don't tell my parents. And yeah. like, I remember I would like skip last, like my last class to get home to like delete the message on the yeah. phone machine so they don't find out. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like coming from an immigrant family, like I was just always kind of taught, like you need to work hard and yes. there's going to be shit along the way and you just deal with it. Yes. And I like, from what I can like say, like my success has probably come from that. And yes. I still have friends that live in their parents' basements playing Xbox every day. And I'm like, sure. Oh, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> stop going out to the clubs Thursday through Sunday night and like, mm-hmm. get your life together. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. So what you're describing is like the impact of being a first generation kid and like, you know, what that was like for you and what the messages where you were sent are. And those are things that are like pretty much outside of your control. Like you didn't pick your family, but that's had such a major impact on like your work ethic or how you perceive things that happen to you. And, um, again, like you're a bigger picture kind of guy. I think in the hour that we're talking together, you keep like widening the lens to look at the broader context of what, of what's going on with an individual and how that influences their behavior and exercise or nutrition or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I try my best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So last question, because we're like already at an hour. Um, Okay. Where can people find you online? If you have any like projects coming up, more seminars and things like that. Mm, Okay. So I'm on Instagram, L I L E W Lilu 13. I'm on Facebook. Um, I started to put together a website and then had a baby. So my website baby has yet to be born because my baby baby was born. But, um, I think you could probably stay tuned to social media to see when that's going to go up hopefully in the next month. Um, let's see. Um, right now, um, I'm planning to do a retreat with Artemis Scandalides from Iron Body Studios and Julia Laduski. Um, that is, um, going to be at the Arizona Grand Resort. It's a three-day retreat that is called the I Am Not Afraid to Lift um, retreat, and it's designed for women. So there's going to be strength training, kettlebell work, and mindset work. Um, And you can find information about that on my Facebook page at ironbodystudios.com or by looking at Artemis Scandalides information. She's also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, And then Tony and I, let's see. So you'd have to go to Tony's website, TonyGentleCore.com, to find out our seminars that we're doing next. I know we have one planned for Toronto this summer. And I know Tony gets emails occasionally from gym owners or other people in the fitness industry who have invited us to come places. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be some more on the agenda. Or if you're like a coach or somebody who wants to bring a, a training on, we do a training called Strong Mind and Strong Body something like that, you're welcome to get in touch with Tony and ask about it. But I guess stay tuned would be my answer to what's coming up next. Yeah. I almost forgot. Why can't Tony watch the walking dead anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I don't know. I didn't think I never, I don't think I told him he couldn't watch it, but I, I'm not like a zombie loving person. (laughs) I know there's people who like are into the whole zombie world, but, um, yeah, I probably what he's referring to, he probably cued you to ask that question, yeah, but yeah. The, wh- what he's referring to is whenever he's watching a zombie something, particularly The Walking Dead, like I can be in the bathroom and all I hear is like, 
<laughs> like, and I, it just makes me feel like sad and depressed and I don't know. I'll, I'll be like, turn that off or I'll turn the music on so I don't have to hear it. Yep. Um, if I'm like getting ready for work or doing something in the kitchen, it's just like a, <sighs> I, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> the, the maybe, hissing, yeah. maybe now that there's like a baby in the house, I just don't want him exposed to that weird <laughs> zombie noise, but <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no offense to the zombie loving people out there. I know there's a whole segment of the population who loves it, but I don't yeah. get it. <laughs> so again, I want to thank you for all your time. This was amazing. Oh, thanks so much for Paul for having me on. It was great to talk. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 36 with Lisa Lewis. Now I'm going to ask a favor from all of you. If you could, please share this podcast. Right after I stop rambling at the end of every episode, can you please just share the episode, share the podcast on any kind of social media you're out there or even email it to a friend and just help me build my audience and that would be amazing. And again, if you can you know, rate and subscribe to the podcast. I'd also be greatly appreciated. And now until next time, we'll see you guys next week. 